Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast on the Psalms. My name's Cameron, and I'm looking forward to today's discussion. All right, g'day, Ken here, and uh, I'm looking forward to it too, Ken. Hi everyone, this is Luke, I'm very happy to be here also. And I'm Lachlan, and I'm really looking forward to this little snippet of community that we get online. And to kick us off, I've actually got a comment that came in from our last episode where we were discussing Psalm 91. So Gavin from New South Wales picked up on our labelling of that psalm or parts of that psalm as hyperbole and pointed out that Jesus also uses this same style in Matthew 10 verses 29 to 31, talking about how worthless sparrows and the hairs on our heads. Uh, and he, Jesus also uses a similar style in Matthew 6, talking about birds and lilies. This is using the style of language where things are being exaggerated a bit to make a point. And Gavin says, what better style or focus is there than the language of love? And it's certainly true that when we're talking about something or, or more commonly someone that we care a lot about, we do gravitate to hyperbole as a language device. Of course, in the case of my wife, the hyperbole is true. Well, yes, the, the fact that something's been exaggerated, the fact that you employ exaggeration, if it's used intentionally, you signify by something great, which is not factually correct, something great, which is. That's the whole point of hyperbole. You can't dismiss hyperbole on the grounds that it's not factual. Uh, it's a device that truthfully conveys an image of something great. And in the psalm from last week, we were talking about God's great capacity and great desire to, to step in and save his people. I find Jesus using these sorts of things quite a bit when you're reading through the Gospels. And I it's one of the things I like about reading the Gospels like this is seeing Jesus with a bit of a sense of humor and a bit of a, a master of language and storytelling and and some of those powerful uses of language as a, as a way to communicate things that are really profound and difficult just to lock down into really textbook sort of dictionary style or encyclopedia style language. Yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering whenever you, you are tackling a piece of scripture and, you know, leveling at it the charge that it's less clear than it could be, that the documents that we that humanity has produced, which are the most clear, the documents we produce where our object from the outset is to create something that leaves no room for misinterpretation are usually pretty dull documents to read. I'm thinking of like a rental lease agreement <laughs> uh, or the Constitution of Australia or something. You know, they're not the sort of things that you would necessarily read for encouragement or to be uplifted. And the Bible has, of course, a huge literary scope of different genres and obviously different authors. And I think it's one of the fun things we're picking up from the Psalms is you know, the different uh, nuances, the different uh, facets of of a life of faith that they present from all these different perspectives. And we'll get on to this a bit later, but the psalm that we're going to look at today is uh, a psalm of Solomon. Yeah, well, just before we get to that psalm, Gavin, in his emailed comment, makes one more point that I think is really nice. He says, I think the point for our supplications in prayer might be to accept that God knows our needs and we can simply say, your will be done. Again, following Jesus' example. Uh, inspired by that comment, I dug out uh, one of the books that I've referred to previously. It's a book I picked up in the Avondale College bookshop, actually, while I was a student there, and it's a collection of C.S. Lewis essays. And there's an essay he writes on prayer. And he introduces a bit of a spanner in the works to Gavin's comment. He says there are two patterns for petitionary prayer in the, in the Bible. One of them is the one that the Lord himself taught us, the clause, Thy will be done. 
you know, uttered in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is that model of prayer comes highly recommended and, and modelled to us by Christ himself. And uh, it, there seems something very uplifting. Uh, uplifting is not the right word. Very trusting is what I'm saying about that, that prayer. And Lewis writes, If this were the only pattern of prayer, I should be quite content. If the faith which is demanded of us were always a faith in the goodness of God, a faith that, whether granting or denying, he equally gave us the best, and never a, a faith that he would give precisely what we ask, I'd have no problem. Indeed, a submissive faith like that seems to me, if I were left to my own thoughts, far better than any confidence that our own necessarily ignorant petitions would prevail. He would feel very comfortable with this, but there's, of course, another sort of prayer, and this prayer also turns up in the Gospels. He calls it the B pattern. There's the A pattern and the B pattern. And in the B pattern, what seems to be the crucial ingredient in the prayer is an expectation that this specific thing prayed for will happen. Uh, So when Christ says, your faith has healed you, to the woman with the hemorrhage, there is the suggestion that it was her faith in that particular event. And Lewis, it's an essay, the reason I brought it up is it's an essay worth reading. It's really interesting. It's called Petitionary Prayer, A Problem Without an Answer. Because the problem with these two prayers, the prayer of submission and the prayer of faith, where God responds to people's faith of a particular thing happening and makes that thing happen for them, is that you can't pray both those prayers at the same time. Uh, But if you're going to ask for something, you have to use one of them. Maybe you can, if what in fact you're praying for is the very thing that God would give you. I mean, while it's not a positive one, the example of Jesus' prayer is, uh, in the end, a reasonably clear one, I think. Yeah, but in Mark eleven twenty three, uh, Christ says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it, and you will. Mm. There's certainly that tension, isn't there, that you, if, if I believe enough, if I don't have enough doubt, then I'll get whatever it is I pray for, and if I don't get it, then clearly I didn't have enough belief and I had too much doubt. Mm. And then you contrast that with the prayer of submission. I have to say I feel much more, I feel a little bit like C.S. Lewis on this one, I feel much more comfortable with the prayer of submission because I don't have a great degree of confidence in my ability to select the correct thing that ought to be done because I simply don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and I don't know what the impact of my request will be Mm. if it were to come true. Yeah. Food for more thought and definitely food for more discussion and we might come back to some of these topics. It's certainly a common theme in the Psalms is... Uh, the psalmist commenting on God's response and sometimes lack of response to his requests. Yeah, I think anyone who wants to pick eyes out of the psalms and walk away with a picture that God always answers your prayer exactly as you want it, as long as you pray it faithfully enough and hard enough and honestly enough and fervently enough and whatever else enough, uh, is probably not taking the balance of the Psalms because there's a bit of that there, but there's also, and we've looked at some of these in previous episodes, those Psalms written when people are saying, hey, we just feel like it's not going the way we asked. Uh, and and I think taken collectively together, there is a genuine reflection of reality and we all sort of see those experiences and those differences at various times in our own lives and at, in various different people's situations. 
even the the passage quoted in the New Testament by Gavin is a little nuanced. When when Christ says, "Not a sparrow falls without your Father in heaven knowing, or without your Father in heaven being there," the sparrow is still falling. Yeah, <laughs> well, that could be a topic in and of itself. We encourage comments. We're really interested. This is our attempt at a community while we're all in lockdown, and we just enjoy hearing from you. So if you have any thoughts on the discussion we have in this episode or in any of the previous episodes, don't hesitate to email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com, and we'd be very pleased to hear what you have to say. Uh, The psalm that we're going to look at this week is Psalm 127. It's a song of Solomon. This psalm, the opening verses of this psalm, is actually the it's the school psalm for the school where I work here in Launceston. The opening verse, you said? Yeah, of 127. Okay. I'm glad it's just the opening verse and not the whole thing, because that would be a very strange motto for a school. Yeah. Yeah, there's some <laughs> odd bits in there, uh, besides which it's a little bit sexist. Although, of course, at the time that the school where I work was founded in 1846, it was only a boys' school anyway, so... Uh, maybe it could have fitted. I don't know. Let's let's read the psalm. Psalm 127, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. Right, well, this psalm takes a bit of a, a sharp turn, in my opinion. Very sharp Part way through. <laughs> Even if it didn't mention at the beginning that this is one of Solomon's, you can kind of tell... I think it just is the same sort of voice that you get in other sort of feels a bit like Ecclesiastes attributed to him. Yeah. Adrian Plass said, if, if you ever want to come across as, you know, having deep spiritual insight and capable of seeing truth that no one else can see while at the same time, not blowing your own trumpet, the most effective way is to be found in the back pew of a church you know, quietly chuckling over a passage from Ecclesiastes. <laughs> oh dear. It, it lends an air of secret knowledge because almost certainly no one else who reads Ecclesiastes will, will find anything to chuckle about. But yeah, there is there is a little bit of, of that tone present here in this psalm. Yeah, definitely. There's a part uh, right here near the start that jumps out at me, and it jumps out at me because one of my favourite Bible stories is the story of Nehemiah. So let me just focus in on that for a moment. Right here in the first verse, it is, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And that makes me think straight back to the story of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is overseeing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And I've turned back to Nehemiah 4. Sanballat hears the news that the wall is being built, and he's angry and greatly enraged. And Sanballat and Tobiah and the Ammonites... And the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, and they were very angry. That's verse 7 of Nehemiah 4. What I really love is verse 9. Nehemiah says, And we prayed to our God, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. 
So there's this there's this sense, and I've commented in an earlier episode on this, but I do find it one of my favourite passages. I turn to it very regularly. There's a sense here of wholehearted dependence on God because their first reaction is to pray, but also wholehearted embracing of the practical challenges that they're facing, and so they set a guard. So they are not relying on self because they pray to God, but they're not relying on miraculous salvation. They understand that there's sensible precautions they can take that make sense. And work resumes, and down at the end of that chapter, you know, verse 21, 22, and so on, And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And and there's this sense, you know, they're even sleeping with their weapon and their protective clothing on. So I come back now to Psalm 127, where we're looking. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's a sentiment that's nice, but it can be taken to an extreme where the watchman can then say, ah, well, I'm convinced the Lord is watching over the city, so that covers it. And I think Nehemiah and the story in Nehemiah speak a bit against that kind of extreme view. This psalm also speaks against that view because it, it very explicitly doesn't say that God watches over the city, so the watchman doesn't need to do anything. It only says that if God is not also watching over the city, then as hard as the watchman tries, ultimately his efforts won't be enough. But that's not the same thing at all. Is the converse true? I guess what we're saying, if the uh, if the watchman doesn't watch over the city, does the Lord watch in vain? There's, I was re- thinking while you were talking of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 where Christ tells them all to collect the leftovers so nothing will be wasted, which is a bit of an odd request, considering he can make as much food as he wants. <laughs> I'd not thought why, of it that why way do we before. Have... And then he criticises them all when they follow him up afterwards. They're like, oh, you know, can you do us a si- give us a sign? And Christ says to them, look, you're only coming to me today because you were well-fed yesterday. A, a faith of that sort isn't really what I was looking for. There's a really interesting anecdote on that, um, and it's to my mind just because at the moment, uh, while everything is shut down, musical theatre and, and stage performances are not running. So Andrew Lloyd Webber has been behind getting every weekend, there's been one of one sort of recording of one of his musical things going for 24 hours on YouTube. And of course, one of the musicals he wrote is Jesus Christ Superstar, which has some elements that are perhaps a little troubling, but there's an elegant and very subtle musical sort of signal in the way that the story is told in that musical, because the song that is telling the story of the trading in the temple, that Jesus comes and says, you know, it's written, my temple should be a house of prayer. Very, very strong rebuke of them trading in the temple. So the song has this rhythm to it, and it's this idea of trading and and commerce and, um, you know, wanting personal gain because they're selling things. That exact same music is used just a little while later when Jesus is among the poor and sick, and they're clamoring for Jesus to heal them. It's a little bit like what you're saying, Cam, the, the, the attitude of some was genuinely to seek Jesus, but there was an attitude that was a little bit present, which was this idea of, hey, this guy does cool magic tricks. Like, we can 
give us a sign. We want another sign. We're in this for, you know, this is an amazing show. We want the show to go on. We want to feel entertained. And so musically, there is a, a thematic link made between the asking crowds wanting a sign and the trading commercial activity happening in the temple. And I get a little smile on my face whenever I listen to that little passage of music because it is a very interesting take on it. I like that thought, Locke. I uh, was reflecting on uh, Luke's thought as well about the fact that we have our part to do. And it's very clear that even in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, so the immediate thought is God's there with his um, tool belt and he's the one doing the work. But then you see those who build it labour in vain. So there's clearly those who are building it. But it's a bit like perhaps any ordinary building site. You have the uh, the principal and the um, head contractor and then a number of subcontractors and unless, and, and well, I wonder which one God would be. Would it be the principal or would it be the head contractor? Mm. There's a passage in the New Testament, isn't there, in one of Paul's? I'm just trying to find it. Yes, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Yeah, that's a very good one. And there's the other one, um, and I was looking for it earlier too and didn't find it. Um, in, in him we live and move and have our being. And the uh, other one I think is in Colossians, uh, Christ is all and in all. So we see the same sort of thing there. I think some of these passages speak to something that we often get wrong in our culture because we like to categorize things and, and sort of divide them up into, into sort of organizational units. And so for us, this distinction between our work and God's work or this distinction between natural and supernatural, for example, makes a lot of sense. But it seems to me from things that I've read and even just from those passages that we've dug out now, Perhaps the ancient mind writing here doesn't see such a sharp distinction or difference and is seeing a far more nuanced and overlapping idea of God's activity and our activity being united together. That lines up very much with my learning as well, Lachlan. I've attended some theological training where they, they made the point that forming this sharp distinction, we call them silos, you know, putting things in separate silos is a modern, primarily Western cultural trait of thinking, a sort of industrial age construct where you put, you know, the spiritual in this silo and the supernatural in this silo and the, the physical in this silo and the mental in this silo and the emotional in this silo. For most of human history, people haven't really thought like that. Certainly not the writers of of anything in the Bible, they would have seen, as you say, a much more sort of intimate entanglement between the act of praying and the act of doing something to address whatever it is you're also praying about. It's To them, it is the same thing. Mm. So you pray to God for protection, but you also post a watch. Yeah, and their history is saturated with God electing to, to use them to use people so really we should we should expect that to be his sort of modus operandi even in our to our modern mind though there there is a genuine ambiguity particularly when you're trying to 
identify causation. We're all very glib when we say things. Things like, things fall down because of gravity, or because of the law of gravity. Well, the law of gravity was only sort of formalised in, what, the 1600s, and they got it wrong. And we think we've done a bit better since then, and certainly what we've got has some very strong predictive power, but we're not certain it's right. But things still fell down before we formulated the law of gravity. The law of gravity doesn't cause anything to fall down. When we see an aeroplane flying overhead and you say, what, what's causing that aeroplane to fly there? You could say, there's a high-pressure system under the wing, there's a low-pressure system over the wing, it's formed by the air moving over the wing, it generates something called lift, that's what's causing the aeroplane to stay there. Or you could say what's causing it to stay there is a pilot. There's a pilot at the controls who manipulated those controls and the natural elements to bring the plane to that place at that point in time. Or you could say an airline has scheduled a flight and some passengers bought tickets. And that's why it's there. Or, Uh, in the case these days, not there. (laughs) That's the case. Ill-timed example. It's obviously the case that nearly everything has levels of causation that exist at different that complement each other at different levels. And I think that's what the psalmist is saying here. He He's saying that in the things that you try to do, what you do may be important, but it's not the whole picture. This this comes out in verse 2. You know, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. The New Revised Stand version that I'm reading from has the interesting thing, eating the bread of anxious toil. And how much of what we do is based on anxiety and uh, a desire to provide for ourselves, mm. uh, worrying about what there might be tomorrow. And again, we referred to Jesus talking about the, the lilies and the birds and his provision for them. It's interesting that there's this ang- anxious toil. Uh, take that as a parenthesis in, into your comment and carry on with your comment. Well... Yes, my comment was just going to conclude by saying I have difficulty with the closing part of that verse where it says that God grants sleep to those he loves. Um, the reason I have trouble with that is I've got three kids and I know Locke, you have two and Luke, you've got a, a delightful but I'm sure sometimes a noisy addition I've, to your... I've got a child such that I wonder how anybody survives having more than one. <laughs> yes, well, we can. You need to, as you're, you're the person of much wisdom and experience that we can turn to, and this is of some relevance to the sentiment of the, of the rest of the psalm, how did you manage <laughs> with all your kids? It, it, isn't that an interesting question? I mean, because he, um, uh, uh, just to give some context, I am blessed to be the father of uh, uh, four men, and, uh, and two ladies or women. And it's been a rich and busy and blessed journey with that. But I did have to have have a little chuckle that he finishes off. He gives sleep to his beloved. Sons are indeed a heritage from the, the Lord. So uh, there seemed to be an inconsistency there. <laughs> and again, quoting Adrian Plass in his Sacred Diary, which is a fictional account, but imbued with you know, a huge amount of truth about life. Adrian Placid in one episode is looking after his three nephews who are triplets, age two. And at the start of what looks to be a very long and difficult night, Gerald, his son, says to him, Dad, I think I think these three young boys, they're trying to I think they're trying to tell you a Bible verse. <laughs> and his dad says, Oh, don't be silly. And he says, No, look, I I think it's a prophecy. I tell you what, I'll write it down, I'll put it in an envelope, we'll leave it here on the on the dressing room table. In the morning you tell me if it's right. So he comes down in the morning and Adrian Plass is sitting there bleary eyed. And Gerald says to him, Dad, what about the Bible verse? Was it was it true? 
And Adrian's been up all night changing nappies, playing games, putting these nephews to sleep and in not a very you know, positive state of mind. He, he's completely forgotten about this Bible verse. So he pulls it off the, the mantelpiece and reads it. And it says, we shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, it's beautiful. Well, I, I, want, I want to make a motivational poster with verse two of this psalm. And I'm just going to use three dots to replace some of the bits in the middle. Because I think the poster should say, it is in vain that you rise up early, dot, 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 for he loves to give his beloved sleep. <laughs> so it's clear instruction to sleep in. That, I'm, that's, that seems to me to be one of the very best justifications for such an activity. It's not very compatible with having young children in the house, though, and, and sons are a heritage from the Lord, and children are a reward from him. Can I say that's been my experience? I have, for all of its challenges and tiredness and uh, confusion, it's been a great blessing uh, for me. I consider my uh, children to be amongst my best friends. It's a wonderful delight. Uh, and I certainly feel blessed by that. Encouragement for all the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Hang in there. Yeah. I, I want to ask everybody else because I'm not coming up with anything particularly insightful. But do you see any connection at all between the first half and the last half of this psalm? There's a connection in the sense that the psalmist is adding a perspective of something beyond, you know, the naturalistic, mere physical world that we see. So, you know, you have children. Well, they're actually a heritage from the Lord, just like the builder is building their house, but, but there's something more significant happening behind the scenes. I can see that connection, that the house is both the product of your labour and that of God. The city remains um, unchallenged uh, because of both God's work and the work of the, uh, of the guards. And uh, family is something both that we do and something that uh, God gives. So there's that connection that I can see. There is an architectural connection here, but I'm struggling to really see any meaning in it. The first verses speak of building and watching watching over a city. And then the section about kids ends with this, the man who has lots of children shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So enemies, gates, that seems to be reminding me of watchmen over a city other than just the matchup of, of imagery there, I'm struggling to see a coherent connection. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if there is not some message about the relative importance of relationships and family and community, if I can extrapolate that far, over achievements. Yeah, so as opposed to, as opposed to having lots of cash, as opposed to you know, having the latest, greatest car or the or the best weapons, the thing that's really going to back you up at times when you need it is your family. And and presumably your God as well from this psalm. Not presumably, well, explicitly. He's the one who, who has, has given you the children. I can say quite confidently uh, that children are in large part incompatible with cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, or at least with hoarding of it. Yes. Um, that's right. 
Uh, of course, one trouble that, that I have... That may be the blessing. Yeah, that maybe that's the blessing. <laughs> yeah, well, true enough. <laughs> one trouble I have with this psalm is that I don't contend with enemies at a gate. Any gate. Not even the school um, gate? No, I did have a cow that could be loosely described as my enemy that kept breaking into my garden from the neighbours. And it is true that my kids did help me just chew the cow away. But that's the closest that I, I think I could come to. But the, the gate, um, your enemies at the gate, this might not just be military. If you remember the story of Ruth, the gate to the city was was marketplace uh, where you negotiated sales. You know, the, Your enemies at the gate might be you know someone with a grudge against you. Uh, I was looking at one of the translate one of the versions of it that had something quite weird in it that's related to that. Cam, let me just see if I can find it again. While you're looking for that, Luke, it certainly seems to me that it not only was the gate the marketplace, Cameron, but it really it was the place where the city elders were, and it wasn't just a place of transaction. It was a a place where disputes were resolved by the elders at the gate. So it was the, it was where court was held. So in that sense, that, that, that can bring some clarity to this when you're contending with those you have a dispute with, when, you're, when, when you've gone to court. Well, it's wonderful to have the support of your family. Hmm. Yeah, it's the New International Version where it, in the last verses it says they will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court, which sounds like a very different sort of situation to my ear than fighting with enemies at a gate. But, but I mean, maybe contending with your opponents in court was a very deadly serious sort of affair. Uh, I don't have the cultural context. But, but it, does, it, it does suggest exactly that. It's, it's any, any sort of conflict. Well, no, it's interesting in that NIV uh, translation you just read, Luke, because uh, in my, I'm reading the ESV tonight, and it says at the very end of verse 5, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And that's, blessed is the man. So the man shall not be put to shame. But then there's actually a footnote, and it's it's got an alternative writing of it in the footnote, which says, or they shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And to my reading of that, it seems that there's a certain ambiguity here, presumably in the original language, as to whether... That last sentence is speaking of the man who has the children or the quiver full of children. Or the children themselves. Well, if you want to make it even more confusing, the New King James Version translates it as, Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Which is a different, a slightly different scenario again. That because they're not ashamed presumably with their numbers, they can go and speak with their enemies at the gate with confidence mm. and strength. It's it's a different reading again. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting sort of sentiment. It's obvious that the last half of this psalm is, is very culturally... It's saturated with a, with our culture. I mean, in an agricultural society, our children are a financial asset, to get back to your comment about cash can, not a liability. And one of the things you have to do in a world that's facing problems because of overpopulation is that when you are bringing aid to countries, you need to find ways of, of making children financial liabilities. And a really good way, apart from all the other extra and perhaps more important benefits of this, is to send them to school. Certainly, the author's trying to say something which 
I'd like it in the closing minutes to sort of summarise what the essential idea is. But the language that's being used is is not the sort of language that you would use in today's culture, where large families are not necessarily seen as associated with wealth. Children are expensive. You know, we, we live in a different culture, different times. Speaking of an agricultural society or an agrarian uh, culture, we live on two and a half acres. Uh, and I have to say, having more children was always very helpful when we were trying to do the weeding or pick up the bark uh, and the sticks around the place so that we could properly mow the lawns. It was always good to have more of them doing it. It meant less time for everybody. Yeah, now they've left hope, Ken. I guess you're waiting for grandkids. <laughs> yes, quite so. Now that they've left home... Uh, it's Wendy and I, and it means less time building the aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. There is one element of it, Cam, that I think still holds true in today's culture, though maybe not everyone would agree. Uh, it's in verse 4, where it says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. As someone who had kids, or who had a kid, um, a bit older, <laughs> and who desperately wishes they had more energy, <laughs> and found late nights easier... I think that still holds true. I wanted to pick up, Cam, on a thing you said about, you know, just picking up the, the cultural thing here. You've already commented that we have to change our minds a little bit because we typically come from societies where children are financial liabilities rather than assets. I, I've looked at a, a crosslink here in my Bible, and there is a connection in this section about children back to the book of Job, just in terms of the language, not necessarily in terms of theme, but this is Job 5, where Eliphaz is speaking to Job, fairly close to the beginning of the, the story of Job. And in, verse, in chapter 5 of Job, uh, starting from verse 2, Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. So it's just picking up a lot of similar key pictures, isn't it? Children, gates, enemies, because in this case they're crushed, a dwelling, and even the temple. So, look, I can't make much of a serious comment on this. It's just... It's, it's a bit of a worry, Luck, because Job's friends are not sort of reliable sources, of, not recommended sources of truth. Well, in that case, then, why don't we say that Psalm 127 is far is far more educational for us than Job 5.4 in terms of seeking great wisdom? But I guess what I was going to say was, is it possible that some of these phrases were sort of manners of speaking or, or common phrases, just like we have some, and, and I experienced this a little bit living in Germany for a few years and realizing some of the ways we say things are just incredibly weird or at least incredibly arbitrary. You know, in, in our culture, we cross our fingers and we mean we're wishing for luck. In Germany, you press your thumbs. So I'm just wondering whether some of the things here in Psalm 127, particularly here in the second half with the children, may be painting pictures of blessing and prosperity, but painting them using phrases or pictures that are perhaps culturally more familiar to that original audience. And that's one reason why we're wondering a little bit and struggling slightly to see exactly how, how this is all hanging together. I can imagine these are commonly used and understood metaphors. Arrows for a warrior and... Yeah, uh, sort of like a cultural and, and enemies idiom. in the gate. 
and I mean, we, we've always had this, you know, the images we have of heaven, of sitting around on a harp. Uh, not sitting on a harp. <laughs> it's getting Everyone late. perched up on top. <laughs> the images we have of heaven of sitting on a cloud and playing on a harp come from mistreated slaves working hard on the sugarcane fields in the US. And the idea of just sitting on a cloud and playing music all day sounds pretty good. Uh, to someone in that position, to me, it speaks a little less strongly. Well, I had that same thought came back when we when we were looking at someone in verse two pulled out the the phrasing in one of the translations, anxious toil. In the ESV, verse two is um, eating the bread of anxious toil. My mind has been wandering slightly on that because if you think to a society where the key struggles are survival itself, then that anxiety is going to be around supplying bread to the table, supplying food and safety and, you know, water and the survival essentials. But might that same verse not speak to us equally powerfully, even though we live in a society where more or less the essentials are covered? There are other anxieties that feel important to us. Uh, you've commented in the context of secondary schools, how, you know, social media or the anxieties oh, that surround. And, and maybe this, this psalm could speak a bit to that context. Yes, you've inspired me. You've inspired me. I might bring this up at school. I mean, huge anxieties. And what's interesting is that studies have shown that if you read a, a post on social media that makes you feel negative feelings such as envy, or poorer body image, poorer opinion of your own body. If you if you read something on a social media post that makes you feel negatively, you are more likely to stay on social media than if you read something that's, that's positive. So if you read a post and you say, oh, Mary's engaged, how lovely, then you put it back in your pocket. But if Mary is your ex and that bloke she's with is, you know, you've cousin's best friend or something and you'll stay on the social media more often so so the structures that we are using to relate to other people seem to tap into anxiety at a deep level i've, I've inspired this is what it'll say unless the lord uh unless the lord builds the social media profile the the bloggers labor in vain unless the lord watches over the instagram account the influencer works hard in vain. In vain, you rise up early, do your makeup, brush your hair, change your clothes four times, adjust the lighting, pour yourself a coffee, take a snap, hashtag woke up this way. It's but not he, quite as pithy as the original. He grants sleep to those he loves. I think the bread may not be a especially literal reference even in the original context I mean, bread is is used in other parts of the bible as a metaphor for spiritual nourishment and and things of that the bread bread of sorrow or bread of anxiety certainly suggests someone sort of as you say cam fixating on their anxieties and worries in an unhealthy way you know fixating on it as though it's nourishment but it's, it's really junk food of the of yeah the, so so is this psalm What's the essence of this psalm then? What's the take-home message? If you were to summarise it in, into one sentence. I don't know that I could summarise it into one sentence, but before we finished the discussion, particularly about that passage, verses 1 and 2, I wouldn't want to miss out referring to uh, Ecclesiastes, and in particular chapter 
4, sorry, chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through to 15, uh, which talk about what gain have the workers from their toil. Uh, I've seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He's made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he's put a sense of past and future into their minds, or the NIV, I think, says he's placed eternity in our hearts. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink, think of the bread, and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. And, and I note that that's Solomon. And Psalm 127 is a Psalm Solomon. And I suspect, like many speakers, uh, even of today, there might be some common themes running through both those passages. Yeah, I think that certainly is. Locke, do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, uh, perhaps asking you to summarise it in one sentence is a bit too much, but you could certainly summarise it in five, because it is only five sentences. <laughs> yeah. So can you bring it down from five? But then it wouldn't be a summary. Yeah, perhaps <laughs> as far as three. To me, this psalm speaks of remember that you're not in this alone to benefit for yourself alone. You're in it with God. That's what gives everything meaning. That's what gives everything color. That's what gives everything sort of long-term merit and and sensibleness. And that's the connection to me between the, the laboring and the building with God's partnership and the children bit at the bottom. Because as soon as you start talking about children and heritage from the Lord, you're invoking the idea, hey, some things you do last longer than you do. There's this sense of speaking to you are just a bit less important than you tend to think you are. And so it's kind of a psalm of context and humility. Do you have any thoughts, Luke? I can give a go at doing it in one sentence. It's a, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I would say that the main message of this is don't stress about the things that are in God's hands and have lots of kids. Right. Good. Well, I guess I guess it does say yes, more or less. That that that's the sentiment endorsed by the by the psalm. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to say that it's not advocating for having lots of kids. It's it's pretty direct. Uh, one thing we haven't touched on at all is the potential sexism here in the focus on watch man, the focus on sons. Uh, the ESV uses the generic children uh, in all cases in verses three and four. Uh, but even in verse 5, it is still, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So it's we have even then it hasn't escaped it. Not only is it a bit sexist, like it's also obviously a bit insensitive to people in that troubling position of not being able to have kids if they want to. And, you know, some of the people, you know, you think of uh, biblical characters in, yeah, unable to have children who, who it caused very real distress for. I think to claim that the psalm is making distinctions between gender or distinctions between different people's worth on the basis of whether they can have kids or their likelihood to lead a meaningful life is, is I think, going a bit too fine, deep. Oh, deep is not the right... Deep, a bit too shallow. Going a bit too shallow into the psalm. Because I think that between you and Luke, that, that you nailed it fairly closely, it is about an awareness 
of something other and that God's input into our lives does not replace our own endeavours but is a really essential ingredient to a life well lived. It enhances endeavours and... Can I suggest this, even though I had a a crack by reading Ecclesiastes before? It seems to me that what this is saying is that it's not just what you do that's important. It's relationships that are important. It's your relationship with God, and it's your relationship with your family, and it's your relationship with your community. They're the things that are important, not just what you do. And if you focus on those relationships, then you will not be anxious for yourself when you are looking to the well-being of others. That's a great thought, Ken. We're going to leave it there. As always, we're so glad that you've listened to our discussion. If you'd like to take part, then please email your comments through and share the podcast if you find it interesting and uplifting. And uh, thanks again for joining us. And we look forward to having you with us next week. Now, there was some discussion on our psalm for next week. And we've forgotten to do this in the last couple of episodes, which we think is a little unfair on you because it's quite possible that you might want to send us some comments in anticipation of the next episode, which is going to be on Psalm 131. So we hope you will be able to join us for that. And again, thank you for listening.